good to be here. Good to be uh, worshipping with you all, as always. Um, so, just want to say again to all the people that contributed to the video, just thank you very much. I know a lot of work went into that. People that coordinated, people that did the tech work of making it all done, um, come together. Thanks, Sarge. People did artwork and stuff. It's just a really good way to introduce the series, I think. So, who am I? The last question. Who are you? Who are you guys? Uh, so far, you are the Imago Day. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. You are an alien, and you are because I am. That's how far we've come so far. This was going to be the last one, the last Imago Day, but we decided we need to add another one. So there's actually going to be seven now, perfect Gentile number, instead of, um, instead of just six. So this morning's message is called Imago Day number six, you are called. You are called. So if I could just get the next slide up. It's not that important, but just don't want to have the who am I up there behind me the whole time. <laughs> I don't think we're playing celebrity heads or something. Uh, so you are called. That is the title of the message. Um, ben is going to bring us the last one, I think, in two weeks' time, maybe in one week's time. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, the main text today is 1 Peter chapter 2. So the last time I did You're an Alien, a few weeks ago, it was 1 Peter chapter 1. Now we're doing 1 Peter chapter 2, so pretty easy to follow me along. Uh, while you head there and look that up, I um, just want to pray. I'm just going to ask Father God to be with us. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in reverence and in awe. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you and praise you for your pursuit of us and how far you are willing to go to save us. And mighty Holy Spirit, please come upon our hearts and minds now. As has already been prayed, don't allow me to say anything that isn't from you, but also open the minds of your people uh, so that we could hear what you have to say. Amen. Now, before we get into the word, it is First uh, Peter chapter 2. I want to tell you a bit of a story. And you know I love interaction, so there will be a question at the end of the story. So this story happened to me uh, about six months ago. Uh, I was in Brisbane and I was catching up with some friends. Uh, we were actually there for an appointment for Naomi and I had a bit of free time with Abby. So I went and caught up with some mates that all happened to be in town for coffee. For coffee, not coffee. Um, really nice cafe in the middle of Brisbane. Much too expensive for my normal budget. I much prefer sleepless. Um, but anyway, uh, so there was four of us there. Myself, uh, there's a guy named Ash. He's a surgeon. Uh, a girl called Liz. Uh, she works over in PNG as a medical missionary and English teacher, and a fellow called Dave, who's a tradie, a mechanic. Uh, the one connection we all have in common is growing up, we're all homeschooled. So, yeah, never mind, it wasn't that weird. Hey, they made it. They're like surgeons and missionaries and tradies and stuff. So, we're all catching up, having coffee, and it was pretty good. It was pretty fun, just, you know, chewing the fat, rehashing old stuff. And I was sort of feeling a little bit dissatisfied with my job at the time. And I asked them how they were feeling. So we all started talking about work. And Ash talked about how, as an emergency surgeon, he'd just finished a 16-hour shift, and that was the fourth one this week. So, yeah, he was feeling a bit under the weather. But he didn't look that wrecked. In fact, he seemed to be pretty much on a high. He described how he just saved a man's arm who'd been crushed in an accident at work. Um, some stuff fell off a forklift, and he tried to get in the way. Got his arm crushed. And Ash managed to save it. It was going to be amputated, but he managed to set a whole bunch of little bone pieces back together. So that was pretty cool. Uh, Liz was actually in Brisbane recovering from malaria, which she contracted in PNG, where, as I said, she's a medical missionary, an English teacher. 
And Dave is a diesel fitter. He works on mines all through Queensland on big Caterpillar rigs and diesel trucks and stuff like that. Uh, he was just in Brizzy to catch up with the rest of us, basically. Um, he'd heard that uh, Liz particularly was going to be there and the rest of us all just happened to be there on that day. So he talked about the strain of missing his wife, staying overnight at mining sites, being on the road for hours at a time with no one to talk to except a hitchhiker or a fellow tradie for company. Um, one thing that we all had in common is we all felt like our jobs were pretty rough, but we had a, bit, a sense of purpose about doing them. We had a, a feeling of calling, like we knew we were where God wanted us to be. So that's where I get um, my first question. What do you think it means to say, I have found my calling? I know what my calling is in life and I'm doing it. Could you say that? And what would it mean? How would you know you'd found your calling? Go. Uh, whichever. These guys are all Christians. Um, but um, yeah, whatever. How would you know you found your calling? Satisfaction. Yep. Doing something your skills line up with. Yep. Anybody else? Have you found your calling, Gabby? Peace from God. Cool. Mm -hmm. Feeling like you've gained success. Cool. Affirmation from other people. Yeah, it's always good when your boss says, good job, <laughs> have a raise, something like that. A deep knowing, even when it's tough, that you're in the centre of God's will and doing what he wants you to do. Good. Thank you. No wrong answers, as always. I was just interested in your perspectives. I wish I'd put it up as a slide. I, I forgot to. But um, I recently saw on Facebook a, a kind of a Venn diagram. It had four circles all coming together. I wish I could show it to you because probably be better than me describing it, but I forgot to put a slide together. Uh, so imagine four circles, all kind of like one, two, three, four, as in quadrants, but they're circles and they all come together and right in the middle there's this one tiny little spot where they all intersect. And it was talking about job satisfaction kind of thing. And the top circle was, uh, so the whole thing's about your job or your career. The top circle was the world needs it. Uh, the second one was you are good at it. Another one was, down the bottom was you can get paid for it. And the last one was you love doing it. Okay, so the world needs it, you're good at doing it, sorry, the world needs it, you can get paid for it, uh, you love doing it, and you're good at doing it, something like that. Anyway, so put all of them together, and right in the very middle, there was this tiny little dot uh, where they all intersect, and that's like perfect, you're calling, where you get the perfect out of all of them. You love doing it, the world needs it, you get paid for it, and you're good at it, okay? And I thought, how many of us actually get to that spot in our job, in our life, in our vocation. Um, I also noticed it was interesting that the world needs it and you get paid for it are pretty much opposites and so are also you're good at it. No, sorry, wrong way around. You're good at it and you can get paid for it are polar opposites and the world needs it and you love doing it are polar opposites, which was kind of interesting. Like most people can do a job, but they hate it. <laughs> um, for me personally, it was I love doing it I think the world needs it, but there wasn't much of getting paid for it in there. Anyway, so that's interesting when you think about a calling. As was mentioned by some of you guys, there's a secular way to think about calling, vocation, finding your niche, this is my fit, 
and there is a spiritual way of thinking about it. Now, I personally believe that every human being has a calling from God. It's part of being the Imago Dei. Each of us has a calling, something that God designed us to do, a task that no one else can do. Now, when we become a Christian, obviously that calling begins to become worked out through the work of the Spirit inside us. So thank you for engaging with the question. Let's go into the Word of God now. First uh, Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and it's quite long, so just read along or listen up to you. First Peter chapter 2. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I'm not going to dig into every single verse in the passage, but I wanted to get the whole context by reading the whole thing. The key verse that I want to focus in on this whole idea of being called, you are called, uh, is, or verses, is in verses 9 and 10. So just to read them again. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So that's kind of going to be the key verse that I'll focus around, this idea of you are called, and sort of have a look at what that means. So context, Peter is here speaking to a group of uh, New Testament believers, and by extension, uh, down through the ages to all believers who become part of the family of God. He says that together we make up a royal priesthood, a people of God. If you are a believer in Jesus here today, you are royalty. You are a priest. That's your vocation. Um, And, of course, priests in the Jewish Old Testament were the people that were literally the middlemen between God and man. People would approach God through the priest, bringing their sacrifice and so on. We, as Christians, now fill that role of a royal priesthood in a slightly different way. People don't bring sacrifices, but we still act as God's uh, middlemen. We fill that role as his ambassadors, and we are to show Christ the world. So there's sort of three parts to this now, which I'm going to get into. The first one is just this whole idea of you are called. Where does Peter get this idea of being called from? Uh, If you go way back to where Peter's story starts out in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and 20 say, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, there's our dude, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Jesus said, come, follow me, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. So this idea of you are called, you're a chosen people, Peter experienced it firsthand. Jesus called him out of darkness into his wonderful light. He also called him away from his job to come with him, but he used his job's terminology to do it. Come with me and fish for men instead of fishing for fish. It's better. Um, so it's no wonder that here in First Peter chapter 2, Jesus equates, sorry, Peter equates Jesus calling him uh, with the way that we're all called. Now, just as Jesus called Peter to come and follow him, so he's called each of us who call Jesus Lord. Uh, Peter stuffed up heaps of times in following Jesus, uh, so there's hope for the best of us. But there's no wonder that here he equates Jesus calling with receiving mercy, as he says there. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. He knew firsthand the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. John 13.34, we find another fisherman, uh, obviously John and his brother James. They also had the same experience. Jesus was walking along and he said, come follow me. They left their father, who was in the boat with them, and went and followed Jesus. And then later on, in John chapter 13, John records something Jesus says. John 13.34, Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So when Jesus calls people to follow him, he expects them to do something, to love one another. And that's how everyone will know they are called. They're Christ-like, self-sacrificing service and love towards each other. Cool. Um, Jesus came to call people back to God. We are the Imago Dei. All of humanity has the image of God within them. But not all of them reflect that. When Jesus calls us back to him, we begin to reflect that through the work of the Spirit. Here in our chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter starts to use this metaphor of building a temple um, out of Jesus and people's lives. So Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation that was rejected by the builders uh, and the world, the Jewish nation at the time. But God's purpose is to use Jesus to create a living, breathing temple for his glory. And the building stones are us, the people of God. The temple is more than a foundation. 
See in verse 5, Peter says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So how do you become a living stone being built into a spiritual house? By offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Remember in our Revelation series, we noticed an interesting thing every time we looked at heaven, when heaven was open and we saw God on his throne, when we saw the great white throne, when we saw the people um, that were sacrificed calling out, when, how long before you avenge us, what was one thing that was remarkably missing? There was no temple. There was no temple in heaven. That's because the temple that Jesus is building, God is building, is Christ the cornerstone and all the believers of all the ages that make up the rest of the temple. It's a living, breathing temple that God's spirit inhabits. So what do we learn from that? Well, you can't be a solo Christian. You can't be a lone ranger. Christianity is not a solo gig. Even for the most introverted among us, living alone on a rock at the edge of the universe is no way to be a Christian. God made mankind for relationship, first with him and then with each other. We're called to take this to an even higher level when we become Christians, becoming bound together and built up into that temple of God, united. You can't be part of a temple of heaven if you're a stone sitting out alone in a field. You can't be bound together in love ties that are stronger than family by sitting alone at home listening to podcasts and thinking you've got the right theology and everyone else is wrong. You need fellowship. You need to be bound together. You need to walk together with other Christians. Jesus wants us to be built up and mortared together with all the others into his temple. By this shall all men know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You can't love people if you never interact with them. So, Christ the precious stone and the stumbling block. Look at verses 7 and 8. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious, Christ the cornerstone. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So Jesus is wonderful and precious to me, to you, to those of us who believe in him, but he's a pain in the neck to people that don't. Like those schoolies that um, our team was talking to that just blew them off, didn't want to talk to them, got angry, got depressed, didn't want to talk about God. Jesus is a stumbling block to people. Why? They stumble because they disobey the message. The message of Jesus is plain, and when it's lived out by his followers, our love for one another, sharing about him, living good lives, then it is, there's no excuse for not believing. It's deliberate, willful obedience to not believe Jesus is God and to accept what he's done for mankind. So Jesus calls us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Why? Why do you think Jesus calls us? Interaction, question, not rhetorical. Why does Jesus call you? Not what for, why? why what was his motivation? To see glory in his creation, yes. What else? Love. love, he loves us, he loves us all. To be with him, yeah, he wants us in relationship with him, just like back in the Garden of Eden. You're the Imago Day, Jesus loves you, God will do anything for you, he already died for you. You are called. So, the question for us is Is Jesus the cornerstone of the heavenly temple that we are being built into precious to us? He should be the basis for everything that we do, and every we, however we live. Is he precious to you? You're here today. You believe in him. Is he your cornerstone? Is he your foundation? John, 1 John 3 verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. 
The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So that was 1 John 3 verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is it because it did not know him. So never mistake the fact that God has called you. You have been made in his image and that image is broken because of sin, but he is calling each and every person back to him. It's up to us to respond and then to band together and be built into his temple. So this is part two, um, the intent of the calling is what I've called it. So we're called. Why are we still here? Why can't we be snapped off to heaven straight away and made into this temple? It would save a lot of heartache and pain and hurt feelings if we could just be snapped off the second we become Christians. And Jesus is like, got that one, got that one, got that one, like he's fishing. Got them, build up the temple, we're done. Never mind the rest of the people. Why are we still here? Not rhetorical. Royal priesthood part. Good. Got work to do, absolutely. I've said it up here enough times. <laughs> um, we're here to be his ambassadors. We're here to find the other stones. Jesus isn't walking around down here anymore, except through us, his spirit. We carry him around with us. That's how we find the other stones that will build the temple up. So back at the cafe in Brisbane, I was catching up with my three mates. Obviously, I was feeling very dissatisfied with my job. They were also having hard times. Um, we all had good reasons to complain. All right? And it's a very normal thing for humans to complain. Things aren't perfect. Things are just a bit off, and we start whinging. Um, so I said to them, well, look, you know, what are the good things about your job? What can you celebrate? And uh, Ash said, uh, well, I always get a thrill when I save someone's life because I know I've given them another chance to meet God. Even if I don't get a chance to talk to them about it, at least now they haven't died. They've got another chance to meet with God. Um, and sometimes I don't save them. Sometimes they die. And then I have to talk to their families. It's amazing how willing people are to talk about eternity when someone dies. So that was interesting to hear his perspective. Liz talked about teaching little kids in PNG and seeing them open up to Jesus for the first time. She's teaching them English and the gospel. Um, and she said that's really rewarding. Even though it's really lonely, she's, in a, she's the only Aussie there in a culture that's different to her own. Um, and Dave talked about long hours on the road, lonely, missing his wife. But he also said, you know what? The times when I get the courage up, I've got a captive audience. They can't get away. So these guys are all doing what they're good at. Most of the time they're enjoying it and they're trying to live out their faith. They're called. So we're called by Jesus and he has a purpose for this calling. Don't ever think that you have to change jobs to serve Jesus. I firmly believe that wherever he's put you, he's got you there to do something. It might be to reach somebody around you with his gospel. It might be that you are just supposed to be an influence or a witness to improve the culture of the place. But you're not there by accident. God is, after all, sovereign. He's in charge of everything. So ask him, what am I here for? What do you want me to do? I was really encouraged a few weeks ago when Steve talked about his mate that wants to identify as a woman. I think his name was Liam, his real name. Um, and Steve said, I'm, I want to talk to him about this. I want to get him aside and have a chat. That's fantastic, because he wants to do something about it. We're called by Jesus. We have a purpose for this calling. He didn't call us to come to a party and be done with it. He didn't just snap us out of here. Remember how Peter's calling came? Jesus met him in his workplace, and he used his workplace terminology to call him. Come with me. Be the greatest fisherman you could be. Stop fishing for fish, for a bit of money. Fish for men. Use what you know. 
So Jesus doesn't call us to stop being who we are or even to change our vocation. He just calls us to serve him where we are. Now, back in um, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, the key verses for this morning. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is the reason for our continued stay on earth. I'm totally convinced of this. We are chosen as God's special possession. He picks us to declare his praises, to glorify him. That's why we're still here. The royal priesthood thing. We are now a people. We have unity. It's amazing how you can go almost anywhere in the world, like my experiences in Turkey, for instance, um, and meet Christians, and you just instantly have this affinity because you're in the same family. You are a people. You're a tribe, a nation that doesn't belong here, a bunch of aliens, um, to reference my earlier sermon. Not only are we being built into God's temple for heaven, we're here to find the other stones that will join us. Um, Another reason we're still here is God is a meticulous planner. I see this right throughout the Bible. Way back in Genesis when he started out, he didn't stop working each day until he could say, it is very good. Every part of creation, he said, it's very good. And he didn't stop working until he got it very good. Jesus said something. The last thing he said when he died on the cross was, it is finished. God is a meticulous planner. He doesn't do things by halves. Um, He's in the business of saving his imago day, his image. But he also has a perfected, completed whole temple that he's building in heaven. And there is a tally of people. There is a number in his mind that that has to get to. And he's not going to come back. He's not going to just snap us all out of here until that number is complete. The temple of heaven is built from the lives of believers. And it's not whole yet. There's not enough believers up there to finish it. So if you're sick and tired of the world and you want Jesus to come back to get rid of it, stop all the rubbish, look for the other stones. (laughs) Keep building the temple. So the cornerstone was laid in Christ centuries ago, but the roof's not finished, the walls have gone up, the decorations aren't done. We are still here because we have a calling to be as ambassadors. Another purpose behind us staying here is to prepare us right now for the work we'll do in eternity. Becoming more like Jesus is not done solely by spending time in his word and praying. Obviously, those are very important things, and I would never say you shouldn't do them, but they alone will not prepare you for the work he has for you in eternity. He expects us to work for him now. He expects us to be in relationship with others now. We have to be in fellowship with one another. We need to bear with one another. We need to forgive one another for the times when we do stupid stuff and hurt each other. If I'm going to spend all eternity with Sarge, it's going to take more than a few Dota games to help us get along. We need to... uh, Learn to be like Jesus in the way we communicate and have our relationship. And that goes for all of us. Look around you. Do you want to spend all of eternity starting now with the people you see here, with what you know about them? Sorry, but I want to change a few things before I spend the rest of my life with you and the rest of eternity. Hopefully some of you have got a few things that need changing as well. I could think of one or two, but I'm not going to tell you. We're still here to rub off those rough edges, to actually prepare us for heaven. Christians talk a lot about relying on the Holy Spirit. That's some of what I'm going to talk to you about now. Um, Paul says in Romans 12, verses 3 to 5, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members... And these members do not all have the same function. 
So in Christ, we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. So we all belong to one another. We need to have something in common that connects us and to the Holy Spirit. In my experience, relying on the Holy Spirit is relatively easy in a Western country where most comforts are pretty easy to come by. I haven't had a whole lot of terribly hard situations, materially speaking, living in Australia. So the two times, or three, three times, when I really have to rely on the Holy Spirit is when I'm doing activities. Uh, the first activity is what I've already talked about, sharing my faith with unbelievers. Really have to rely on the Holy Spirit there because I'm introverted, I generally don't like people. Approaching them and talking about God is fairly scary. But Christ commands me to do it. I need to rely on the Holy Spirit to do so. Speaking the truth in love, I need guidance, I need courage, I need the Holy Spirit. The second activity that forces me to rely on the Holy Spirit is the way I treat other believers. You guys. Like I just said, uh, I don't actually want to spend eternity with you all as I am right now. Do you ever find yourself whining about other Christians? I do. Uh, he said this about me. I can't believe she did that. Why doesn't he ever turn up on time? Those kind of comments and other things. I get so frustrated with other Christians. My attitude stinks and it comes out in my words, in my actions, in my thoughts and the way I bitch to Sarah all the way home from church being really honest here. Um, and then in the back of my mind, the Holy Spirit says, by this shall all men know you are my disciples because you love one another. Okay, stuff that up again. Not ready for heaven. Need to have those rough edges rubbed off. Need to become more like Jesus. This process of becoming more like Jesus through depending on the Holy Spirit is an ongoing struggle. For a theological term, they chuck around the word sanctification. For a practical example, I can think of none better than a marriage. So in a marriage, you live closely with another person, you get to know all about them, and you have to deal with a bunch of things that they do that annoy you. Of course, there's a whole bunch of things about them that you love, and you just find cute and interesting and weird. And those are okay. But there's those things that just really annoy you. Like, why does she keep slurping? Oh. <laughs> That's not about us, because it's just speaking for a friend. <laughs> but you have to choose constantly if you'll allow those things to become deal breakers if you'll allow them to keep ticking you off to the point where you just can't heck it anymore you can instead choose to compromise forgive and sometimes even change yourself for the sake of the marriage relationship it's not a passive thing it's hard work almost every day and it's the same with our relationship with the Holy Spirit he dwells with us Gets to know all about us. We get to know more about Jesus, God, through the Holy Spirit living within us. When he comes to dwell in our hearts, he begins to teach us about God. And it hurts when he tries to change things. It starts to annoy us. And we have to constantly decide, am I going to cooperate with this and choose to become more like Jesus? Or am I going to cooperate with that dirty old corpse still in the closet? Ben described our old sinful nature as a dirty old corpse that's got this big flywheel turning that's incredibly hard to slow down and stop. But there's no one more powerful than God's spirit to stand against that flywheel. Just depends who you choose to cooperate with, the dead corpse or the living powerful spirit of God. The third time that I really have to rely on the Holy Spirit is in hardship. When things happen that are outside my control, outside my plan, I don't want them, I don't like them, and frankly, I have no idea how to deal with them. Losing a baby, Naomi's Down syndrome, financial trouble, stress in our marriage, 
stress from our family. Whatever it is, um, you've all got your own. The things that you can't control, you'd rather weren't there, you just don't know how to deal with. The only way you can actually get through them is to rely on God's Spirit because He has all the answers. Okay, so Jim Elliott is a, was a missionary to Ecuador from America many years ago. He was one of the most inspiring people that I've ever read about. I read Through Gates of Splendor for homeschooling, and then I fell in love with him and the way he talked. He was so brutally honest about everything. So when I was 16, I bought his diaries and I devoured them. I loved reading about how he struggled with feelings, and he wrote everything down. He just wrote about how he felt, he wrote some of his prayers, he talked to God, but one thing in particular really stuck out to me as a 16-year-old. Uh, he was talking about um, when he was at college as a young man, and he was constantly um, battling with sexual temptation. Um, many of his classmates were sexually active, and he was facing ridicule and peer pressure to join in. Get a girlfriend, get on with it, everyone's doing it. Uh, but as a Christian, he firmly believed that was wrong. And he refused to join in. But he recognised the continuing pressure, and he knew he needed some outlet for his physical energy. So he took up a sport, wrestling. He started getting up close and dirty with other guys. And he loved it. He describes in his journal how wrestling forced him to test himself. It was constantly making him learn to lose well, as well as sometimes win. He had to learn from his mistakes. He described how sometimes he got this incredible anger. You know, a guy would hurt him in, while he was wrestling and he'd just want to snap the guy's arm or, even worse, break his neck. He had to learn to control himself. And then he wrote this in his journal. In my sport, I find a, a fantastic metaphor for my life as a follower of Jesus. There is no such thing as a pass passive wrestler. I must act instantly, all the time. And if I must pause, it is only to gather my wits for the next struggle. So it is with Jesus. There is no such thing as a passive Christian. I must constantly choose to act. For I, if I do not, I will lose. And how much worse to lose in the spiritual realm than to be defeated in the ring. So that really stood out to me and I've underlined it and read it multiple times and just always try to remind myself, there is no such thing as a passive Christian. It is a constant act of cooperation with the spirit that lives within you. And if you may pause, like Jim says, it's only to gather your wits for the next struggle. But let's not take Jim's word for it. Let's read some more from Romans. Romans chapter 8, 5 to 17. I know I skipped away from Peter going off to Paul. Romans chapter 8, 5, 17. Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. You can't submit to God's law when you're ruled by your flesh. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, speaking to believers, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit that lives within you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh 
to live according to it. It's not the old dead corpse we have any obligation to. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You remember the verse from John earlier. How great the Father's love that He has shown to us, that He has called us His children, and we are. The Spirit Himself testifies within our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we may share, we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. I know, long passage, what's the point of reading it? It's about living in the Spirit. And there's a couple of things in there. You cannot please God if you live according to the flesh. Like Jim's wrestling with um, and wanting to snap the guy to break his neck that he's fighting. He had to choose not to do it. He had to choose to cooperate with what he knew was the right thing to do. We need to cooperate with the Spirit living within us. Still with me? Good. I didn't, I didn't actually time this, so I don't know how long it is. Amen, brother. Okay, good. That's a good start. Um, moving into part three now. So we've looked at you're called. How do you, like, what's the purpose of this calling and how on earth do we have any power to live it out? Well, the purpose is we're being prepared for heaven. We need to have those rough edges rubbed off before we get built together into a temple. We need to find the other stones and we can't do any of it without the Spirit's power indwelling us. Cool. No such thing as a passive Christian. Part three, the challenge. How on earth do we do this? How do we enact this calling? We're called. How do we live the calling? You're called by God. His calling is to love and glorify Him, be transformed into His likeness, declare His praises, and act as His ambassador until you calls, He calls you home. Cool? Right, so how do we do it? How do we enact it? Remember my three friends at the cafe. Um, each of them was finding ways in their normal, natural lives, in their jobs. I mean, okay, one of them had gone overseas to be a missionary. But the other two were just working normal jobs. A tradie, doing diesel fitting. An emergency surgeon, putting bones back together. Each of them was seeking to be an ambassador, seeking to live out his faith, his or her faith, making the most of every opportunity to love and serve others. They didn't always have the time or the opportunity to speak about Christ. But they always have the opportunity to live as Christ would. And that goes for you and me. You won't always get the opportunity. Some workplaces won't even let you talk about what you believe. Back when I used to work at the uni, they didn't. They're like, nope, you want to talk about that? Do it at lunch. Not interested in wasting productive hours talking about God or anything else religious. So that was interesting for me. Um, obviously, I don't work there anymore. It's back when I worked at uni in Rocky. Um, how do we do this? Each of us has an opportunity to live as Christ would, wherever we are. Come back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and look now at verses 11. Verse 11 and onwards. So we're getting through it. Peter urges us to live godly lives. In verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So there's one thing we can do. If you get something, a desire come you know is sinful, well, get rid of it. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This one's pretty hard for me. Live such good lives that even your accusers can't get anything to stick is a more message version um, of the verse. 
I don't usually like the message very much, but sometimes it serves to give it a different way of saying it. So live such good lives that even your accusers can't get anything to stick. Now, Jesus was a pretty good example of this at his trial. They even paid false witnesses to come and say stuff about him, and they couldn't make it stick because of the sinless life he'd lived, both publicly and privately. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. Okay, is Peter urging us to be sinless here? Not rhetorical. Is Peter saying we can just never, ever do anything wrong? No, he's not. What do you think he is saying? Any thoughts? Live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. What does he mean? When we're conformed to his likeness, we don't stray into those areas willingly. When we become like Jesus, we don't stray willingly into those uh, evil areas? Yep, willingly. Anybody else? Living by the Spirit. Living by the Spirit? In a way that Peter would recognise as not, not natural. Yeah. Do things that aren't natural. <laughs> um, forgiveness, repentance, humility. Yep. I'd like to pick on you, but I, I won't. Yeah, humbly ask their forgiveness. Don't keep acting like you're right all the time and being too proud to say, I'm sorry. Yeah. Sometimes even be willing to let the other guy get the promotion, even though you know he doesn't deserve it. Um, Sometimes be willing to admit that you may have caused the issue and go and apologise to your brother who's leaving soon and you need to make it right with him. That's my one. There's a person who I work with that... I used to be very close to, and I may have wronged him, he may have wronged me, I don't know. Somewhere along the line, we fell out badly, and we've never patched it up. And every time I get up here and preach, and every time I see him, God's going, come on, come on, when are you going to obey me? So I'm preaching as much to myself as to you guys. Um, Yeah, when we live differently to how the world does, when we live such good lives, it means when we are so different from the way the world goes about doing things. Okay. Peter's not urging us to be sinless. He's urging us to cooperate with the Spirit and to live in that power. There'll be times we stuff up, but there's good and godly ways to respond with repentance, with seeking forgiveness, with owning up to what we've done. Um, The next thing that Peter does is uh, quite challenging as well. He goes on to urge us now in the next few verses, starting verse 13, to submit to earthly authorities, which is a challenge sometimes, a recent plebiscite being an interesting example. So he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong, to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. So submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Parents, bosses, submit yourself in love to your marriage partner as well, so spouses, government, military. Is there anything that isn't covered by every human authority? No, no there isn't. So are we supposed to do whatever, the other human, whatever any human authority wants us to do? Also, 
No. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. For it is God's will that by doing good, submitting yourself to authority, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Again, Jesus is uh, probably our best example of this. So I like to think about the, the recent plebiscite, okay? What do you think Jesus would have voted? Do you think he would have voted? These are rhetorical, you don't have to answer. Um, do you think Jesus would have even voted in that? <laughs> it's too much of a aroma. He didn't have a home address. <laughs> he was always out walking around. Well, when there was political requirements in his day, like paying taxes, he did them. So I submit to you that I believe he would have voted. I'm not going to tell you which way I think he would have voted. But why didn't Jesus, the person who has all the authority of the universe at his disposal, just overthrow all the evil government of the day? Why did he go about this hard, suffering road of taking a few disciples, going out in the bush, teaching them lessons along the way, making them go through hard stuff, dealing with people, healing people, feeding people, all this stuff that he did. Why didn't he just set himself up as king of the world? He could have. He had all that authority and power. If you can raise people from the dead, you can overthrow the government. It's not that hard. But he didn't. That wasn't his way. He was calling people to a different way of life, a different kingdom. He wasn't interested in the political agendas of the day then, and I don't think he's interested now. He is interested in the spiritual agenda of calling the Imago Day back to their original purpose, calling us, mankind, to come back to him and become like him, to worship him, glorify him forever. So when Peter's urging us to submit to earthly authority here, he's saying, submit to them, do your civil duty, whatever it is, but do not become so tied up in that that that's all you live for. That's how you, that's your identity. That's who you are. He's saying you don't belong here, but you're passing through, so you may as well do a good job of it. Live as free people. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. That's the key. God is our ultimate master. But while we're here as aliens on earth, we need to submit to the human authorities. Show proper respect to people. So I do think Jesus would have voted, and I think he would have had lots of uh, conversations about it with people, but I don't think he would have demonstrated I don't think he would have gone and thrown lots of hate mail around on Facebook. I think he would have just got on with his business, which was calling people back to himself. And I think that's what he expects us to do too. Okay, one last thing in, in this part. Suffering for Jesus, following his example is another good way. I won't spend too much time on this because I already talked about it in Imago Day 4, You're an Alien. Talked about suffering for Jesus there. Check that sermon out for more thoughts on this topic. But it's worthwhile looking at what Peter says here about suffering. Verse 19. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this, you were called. There's that word again. You were called. What? Yep. You were called to suffer because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Not going to say anything more about it today. But that's the thing we're called to, suffer for Christ in his example. So some ways that we just looked at that we can live out the calling. Staying away from sinful desires, verse 11. Living godly lives so slander won't stick, verse 12. Submitting to human authority for Christ's sake. Uh, which was verse 13, I think, and then suffering for the cause of Christ and following his example, uh, verse 21. You are called. 
Christ has called you out of the world, called you to be a different people, being built together into a temple for his own glory. Um, young people that I work with at uni often ask me, Christian young people, this is, what is God's will for me? I want to know, what should I do? And I was talking about this with my friend Estian recently, because he's been up here a bit lately. And uh, yeah, I was just chatting with him about God's will. And he said, oh, I just wish that there was a really easy way to know what God's will is for me. I said, oh, I can tell you, I know. And he went, what? <laughs> well, that's a bit cocky. No, not really. And I just point him and anybody else that asked me this question to three simple passages. One we've already looked at, the very first one, Jesus himself says it, John 13, 34, a new command I give you, live, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. A new commandment, completely different, love one another as I have loved you. Completely different to any other commandment before it because it's calling them to a different way of life. Love one another sacrificially as I have loved you. That means dying for them if necessary. That means being willing to forgive them, willing to take them back. 70 times 7. That means putting their needs before your own. Love one another. That is the first thing that is part of God's will for you. That's what you're called to, loving one another as Christ loved us. The second one, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. As easy as ABC. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul said it, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always, pray continually and give thanks. Oh, they're pretty easy to do, aren't they? Rejoice always, pray continually, in everything give thanks. No worries. Done before lunch. Mm -mm. <laughs> Not in my house anyway. <laughs> That's right. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So if we can get those right, then we can start worrying about specifics. And then finally, Romans 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Now, there we are again, God's will. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I really do think that it's that simple. Those verses encapsulate God's general will for all believers. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I've loved you, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, and offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Don't be conformed to the world, but be renewed and transformed. That's God's will. That's our calling. You are called. What a wonderful saviour who has called us out of darkness into his glorious light. All right, in conclusion, I just want to read another passage of scripture, and this one's from Corinthians. So yes, I am finishing up now. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, starting at verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you're in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, 
Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let us, brothers and sisters, boast in the Lord. Amen.